Thank you, Don. Thank you to our musicians and the choir and uh, you guys. Um, pray you've been blessed so far. Time for God's word now. Time for the sermon. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. So we've been working our way through the life of Joseph in, in, uh, in previous sermons, but we're taking a bit of a detour today, and so the focus will be on baptism because it's such a special day. So Matthew chapter 3, verse 11 to 17 we'll be reading, and it's part of the same section that we read uh, this morning as well, so I'd like to just focus on this. Matthew three eleven. I indeed baptise you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will throughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Let's, uh, let's commit this time to the Lord and we'll open in prayer. Father, we thank you once again for your blessed word. We thank you that we can trust it. We thank you that you have brought it together supernaturally and that it feeds our soul. And we pray for your blessing this morning as we seek to learn from it and be fed through it. We pray that our hearts and our minds would be open, that you would be teaching us directly and that we would understand these things in order that we might appreciate you more, that we might love you more perfectly, live for you more fully. And Father, have the joy that you have promised us through Jesus Christ. So bless us now as we seek to learn from your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, unless you've been living under a rock, you would have uh, realized that there's a war happening in Europe at the moment. Um, and... Um, the news is filled with stories, and many of them heartbreaking stories, uh, about uh, the consequences of war. We see millions of people displaced uh, from their homes, no longer able to live in their own homes and cities, left, can't work, can't do anything, but are now living at the mercy of other countries. They've had to flee their own country. So we see millions of people displaced, families torn apart, um, Husbands and fathers have stayed back, some of them to fight, while uh, wives and daughters and, and sons and, and, uh, and the elderly have had to leave them behind. Um, lives and livelihoods have been destroyed, the deaths of injuries of many civilians and soldiers as well. We've seen the destruction of whole cities and tensions arising around the world with nervous governments wondering what's going to happen next and what they need to do. You know, there are curious stories. I'm sure many of you have read them about, you know, um, who's winning, who's not winning, how many people have, you know, how many soldiers have died on one side, how many things have been. There's some curious stories coming out, though, of the stories of a number of Russian soldiers laying down their arms. Okay, so while they're in there, they're, they're not actually fighting. Some of them have just left their tanks. Um, some of you have probably seen videos of farmers driving off with tanks behind a tractor. 
but there are stories of a number of Russian soldiers laying down their arms and, and choosing not to fight, and some of them even sort of surrendering to Ukrainian soldiers. And some soldiers, I just saw this for the first time yesterday, some Russian soldiers not just laying down their arms, but some have actively put on a Ukrainian uniform and have started fighting for the other side, which is really strange. Um, but it reminds me of uh, my father-in-law who went through the Second World War. My father-in-law, most of you know, I have an Italian background. My father-in-law grew up in a small town called Sulmona in Italy. And uh, at a young age, he was conscripted into the Italian army in the Second World War. Uh, my father-in-law was a gentle fellow. He was a simple farmer, uh, didn't know anything about politics or wars or kings or, or governments or anything of that nature. But he found himself conscripted into the army um, and found himself in the Italian army, which was at that particular stage an ally of Germany. And so he fought, um, he fought in a number of different places, including Corsica, as I understand it, um, and being thrust into the, uh, the theatre of war affected him greatly for the, in, for the rest of his life. But something happened to my father-in-law during that time. When the Americans arrived and began pushing the Germans back out of Italy, he found himself a, a, a caught up in the whole thing and, and became essentially a prisoner of war from the Americans. You know what they did with him? They gave him an American uniform. So one minute he's fighting for the Italians, next minute he's fighting for the Americans. Okay, and what's interesting about that is you might say, oh, you know, now they've been thrown from the frying pan into the fire. But he, he lived out the rest of his life and he lived till, till you know, over 90 years of age. Um, here in Australia, uh, he always spoke of the Americans in glowing terms on how well they treated him. He was actually quite surprised. I mean, when you are when you become a prisoner of war from the other side, you don't expect to be treated well. I mean, there would have been stories going around about you know people who were treated quite harshly from the other side, and he always spoke in glowing terms of the Americans when they when they took them in. He said it was almost like they welcomed them, and. I suppose, you know, when you've had a second chance, when you didn't get killed and the whole thing, but you got a chance to actually continue to live and it looks like you may get out of this thing alive, he became, I, sus I suppose, quite thankful of the second chance that he got. Getting a second chance sometimes give you, gives you a new perspective on life. You know, for those, of, for those people who maybe had a near-death experience or, you know, maybe caught up in a, in a bad car accident or maybe ended up on an operating table really nearly dead or maybe almost dead uh, and you got a second chance, those sort of opportunities tend to change your perspective on life. And why am I telling you this? Because today we're, we're looking at this topic of baptism and, and what we're really doing is celebrating the change that's wrought in a person who has laid down their arms with respect to God. And they've found peace. And God has done something within their lives that has changed them from the inside out. It declares this thing, which we'll be observing this afternoon, it declares something has happened on a spiritual level on the inside, the most fundamental uh, sense, that has caused them no longer to see life the same way they saw it before, no longer to see God the same way they saw him before, no longer do they see Christ the same way, nor anything else really from that, from that perspective because their perspective about life has changed completely. And the only one who can do, make that sort of change in a person is God. They've understood that they now have had now a second chance. 
and they appreciate it. They've declared to, they're declaring to everyone that sees them and watches what they're doing that they have put down their arms and they've ceased trying to fight with God. And you might think that's a really weird thing to say. Who's fighting with God? I mean, why would you fight against God? You know, it's either you don't believe him or you believe him or you're ambivalent or you don't really care about him. But the, the, the thing that the Bible teaches us about our nature is that by nature, we are rebellious against God. Every one of us. The war in Ukraine is not a unique situation in history. By any stretch of the imagination, conflict is natural to man. The world has always been in conflict from the very beginning. Nation has always risen up against nation. And there are plenty of examples of that throughout all of history. Just grab a, a, just a normal history book and you'll see that the history of mankind is filled with war, filled with conflicts, filled with injustice. Man has been in conflict, not just with, within nations, but he's been in conflict with anyone, really, who thinks differently, speaks differently, looks differently, acts differently. The natural tendency of man is to fear that which is different from himself or from your own particular tribe. And so people naturally attack those that they're threatened by or they're ignorant of. Man has often been in conflict with his own family. Some of the work that I do um, brings me in contact with people who are running organisations that, for example, have and run women's refuge centres. And the number of women who are, who are attacked, who are uh, mistreated by husbands and conflicts within families is astounding. Oftentimes, the people we hurt the most are the people within our own families. And the Bible actually is taught that from the beginning. It told us this is the problem that you've got. I mean, the first two brothers that were born in this world, one killed the other one. The other conflict that man often has is the one within himself. Man, if, you're, if we're honest with ourselves, is never at peace within ourselves. Because our head may tell us one thing, our heart tells us something else, and there's this conflict always going on. We have this moral compass that the Bible says is called a conscience, which tells us this is wrong to do, but then we have a desire, our heart pulling us in the other way, and our head pulling us another way. So there's always an internal conflict that happens within every person from the time they're, from the time they're born. But the greatest conflict the Bible teaches us is about, about man's enduring battle with his creator. It's enduring. It's ongoing. It's constant. We have been in a state of rebellion with heaven from the beginning. We have rebelled against God's rule, his authority, and unfortunately we have suffered the consequences of living outside of his boundaries. Most of you know um, that Israel carried an ark around with them. Yeah, this golden box with two angels on top that looked down into the box and the priests would carry that thing around with them, especially while they were you know, walking around the wilderness for 40 years. They carried this box in front of them. The Bible says that God walked, led them in that wilderness until he led them into that promised land. And you know what was in that box? In that box were, were remnants of their rebellion against him. Even God's own people rebelled against him. 
There was a, there was a, there was uh, the Ten Commandments in that box, which were broken. Why were they broken? Because Moses hadn't even finished coming down from the mountain before they started breaking them. There was a pot of manna, which spoke of their rebellion against God's provision for their lives. There was Aaron's rod, which budded, which told them and reminded them, God's own people here, they rebelled against his authority. And it's the same with every person, let alone God's chosen people. We've been in a state of rebellion with heaven from the very beginning. And unfortunately, we, the, the, the situations we see around the world is a result, a direct result of our disobedience and our rebellion. Just to make it clear, if there is a creator and he created everything in the universe, he also created all the laws in the universe and all the constants in the universe which keep everything running like clockwork. That's the reason you can have science. The reason you can have science is because there are laws that govern nature. And they're repeatable over and over and over. And you can discover those laws if you test for them, if you look for them. And the universe runs like clockwork because there is a clockmaker who sets the laws in motion, who created the clock in the first place and then set the clock and wound up the clock and set it and get it, got it going. But this same creator who created the, the, the physical laws of this universe and all the constants that are fixed also created the moral laws for the moral creatures that he created, the living beings. The ones that have a notion of something that is good and something that is bad. The ones that God created, the Bible says, in his own image, with the ability to understand that. And the Bible teaches us that God's laws are all good and they were all intended to actually be beneficial for us. The first law that God gave was don't eat of that fruit of that tree because the day you eat of that, that, that fruit, you're going to die. Was that a good thing? Yes. Keep away from that. The same way parents tell their children, don't put a knife in the electricity uh, socket. Don't do it. You're going to die. Right? God simply said, don't do that because you're going to die if you do that. And yet what is the first thing that man does? And that created a cascade. All down history. And we didn't just break one law. We then broke every other law that God ever gave us because by our own nature, we are rebellious. We wanted to do it our way. We wanted to be free of this being who wants to have authority. How dare he have authority over me? How dare he tell me what to do? Who is? Who does he think he is? <laughs> The result and the suffering that we see all around us that has existed throughout all of mankind's history is something we can't even quantify. We can't put a number or a figure on it because it's extraordinary what we have done. And this rebellion that, we, that I'm describing to you is in the Bible called sin. It simply calls it sin. But can you imagine if the physical universe had the option to disregard some of God's laws? Imagine for the moment that the earth had the option to say, I don't want to follow the law of gravity for a while. Can you imagine the consequences of that? Well, the consequences, and I can see Russell's brain ticking at the moment, 
the consequences would simply be that, that life would be extinguished on this earth. There would be no life. We would not be sitting where we are. We'd be floating away into space, including all the atmosphere. Everything would fly off the earth. In fact, if the earth decided not to obey the law of gravity, it too would not continue to go around the sun. It would fly off into the distant cosmos and die. Yet mankind thinks he can disregard God's laws and there's no consequences. And there should not be any consequences because I'm an independent being. I have life within myself. I have the right to choose. Yeah, you've got the right to choose. You can jump off a cliff if you want. But last time I checked, we were mortal and we were subject to all the laws of nature. Yet people believe they, they're not subject to the moral laws that the same creator who created those other laws has put in place. A disregard, a disregard of God's laws always brings chaos, always. And the same is true for God's moral laws. And if the Ten Commandments are chosen as just as an example, thou shalt not kill. Well, when you kill, you're creating chaos and suffering. Thou shalt not bear false witness, which means thou shalt not lie. When you go lying to everyone, it creates suffering and chaos. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, for those of you who are married, you can understand what I'm talking about if that happens. But the Bible also says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. The Bible also says to honour God with your life, not to make anything that replaces him, like an idol. And that includes science, career, self, family, philosophy, other types of gods. We replace God with all types of things. We don't realize it. The Bible calls that idolatry, where you put something in the place of God and you allow that to govern your life. All of these things create chaos, absolute chaos. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. It makes it very clear. There is not one righteous person in this world. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The reason there is death and suffering is that people have, by nature, a rebellious heart. We've inherited this same defect from our parents, then from their parents, then from their parents, and we all have the same problem. We want independence from God. But it's foolishness. Because to be independent from the source of life is saying that you have life within yourself. It doesn't work. The moment, the moment we disconnected ourselves from God, when we ate of that tree in that garden, the Bible says we began to die. We died spiritually in a moment, and then we began to die physically. There is one source of life, and the Bible says that that's God. God is the source of life. From To this point, with all the greatest scientists in the world, they've never been able to create life. Life does not come from non-life, never been, never been seen, never been done, never even been coaxed anywhere near. The most they've done is create some basic hydrocarbons, but try putting that into a, a life form. 
life does not come from non-life. And trying to live without the source of life according to, the, to his rules and his regulations is a bit like a train saying, I will be much freer, a train, saying I'll be much freer if I can just free myself from these tracks. Think about that for a moment. What would be the result if a train jumps off the tracks? Is it a good feeling? Maybe while he's in the air, just for that split moment, he'll feel some sense of euphoria and freedom. But the moment he lands on solid ground is the moment he has lost everything. It only ends in disaster, and that's the history of mankind. <laughs> the story of disaster. But back to, back to baptism. Today we are blessed to witness, why are we even doing baptism? Today we're blessed to witness this, this act, this memorial, um, and this occasion that has existed from the very beginning of the church. Jesus himself, as you saw in this particular passage, was himself baptised before he began his ministry. And when he began the church, he commanded his disciples something. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 28 with me. Matthew 28. Jesus' command to his own disciples in Matthew 28, verse 19. And we are seeking to obey this as part of this ongoing command. He says, Go, there, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Well, this day we continue to follow this particular command that he's given us to teach his word, to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And if you haven't quite picked it up just yet, there's one name in the name, not the names, one name of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. If you ever wondered where the Trinity comes from, this is a one of the prime examples of that. But what is baptism? I mean, what is it? There are plenty of baptisms you see around society in different denominations. Many have preconceptions and opinions about what baptism actually means or what it does. Some say it's a mystical ritual that connects a person to the spiritual world. I love that. That sounds really... Some say that unless you're baptised, you can't possibly be saved. You have to be baptised to be saved. Some say that infants need to be baptised because if you don't baptise the infant, it's got some sort of original stain on it. And so if that stain isn't removed by the waters of baptism, then it's going to end up in a place called limbo. Remember that dance we used to do once in the 80s? <laughs> Some say that it conveys special merit on the person, that God is up there giving him tick, 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 and special stars, huh? whereas we get more favour with God because we've done something really special for him. Some are convinced that the waters of baptism wash away your sin and make you clean. What does the Bible say about this? It says all those things I've just told you are completely wrong. Nothing at all to do with baptism. That's not what baptism actually is. And if you want to know the meaning of, of a particular um, a ceremony that God has instituted, that Jesus Christ has instituted, don't go to other people and ask their opinion about it. You know where you go? You go to the source 
where God himself wrote it down and said, this is my definition of it. And Jesus' own words. Because too many people have too many opinions and what they do is they put the Bible to the side and they say, this is what I think it should mean. In fact, did you know there's more than one baptism? There are a number of different baptisms. Not all baptisms are the ones we'll be observing today. There's a baptism of John. John the Baptist. And no, he wasn't a Baptist, okay? He was called John the Baptist, and Baptist didn't start with John the Baptist. Um, he was called the Baptist because he did a whole lot of baptizing. John's baptism occurred before Jesus was crucified, before he rose again on the third day. It was a different type of baptism. His was a water baptism of repentance, which he did at, in, the river, in the Jordan River. And it was in preparation for the coming Messiah. You see, so John came before Jesus and he was to announce the arrival of the Messiah to the Jewish people because they had been waiting for their long promised king to arrive. And John was there in the wilderness baptizing people saying, get your heart ready for him because he's coming. And that repentance was saying, I want to get my life right. I want to turn toward God and live for God now, not anymore for the world. Today, we are not performing John the, ba John the Baptist's baptism because this was just a baptism of repentance toward God. In fact, if you turn to Acts 19 verse 1 with me, we'll find the Apostle Paul fell on a, a caught up with a few of these John the Baptist people who have been baptized by John the Baptist and had John's baptism. And he said, you know what? Now you're missing something here. I have to baptize you again. In Acts chapter 19 verse 1, the Apostle Paul re-baptizes people who had been baptized with John's baptism. It says there, and it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there is an Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were you baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him who should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came upon them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied, which means they immediately began to speak in different languages they'd never learned before, which was a sign to the early apostles that God indeed was working with Gentiles now for the first time. And so it's an important distinction to make. There's not just one baptism, there are many. But baptism always identifies you with something or someone. That's the purpose of it. The purpose of baptism is to identify you to people who are watching with something or someone. In the case of Christian baptism, a person is identifying themselves with Christ. And you'll notice that they received the Holy Ghost here as well. Baptism in water is a picture of what's happened to a person spiritually. You see, the baptism of the Holy Ghost is what really changes a person. 
That's the thing that changes you. That's the thing that, that, that actually makes you a child of God. It's the thing that happens at salvation. Water doesn't actually save you. Water doesn't wash away any sin from you. It's the blood of Christ that washes away all of our sin. So John makes a declaration in that first passage I read that Jesus is mightier than he and that he would baptize people with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So turn back to Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. Matthew 3.11. So John the Baptist is speaking here. And he says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, that's his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. For those of you who know a little bit about um, uh, gathering grain and what you do with it, it is when you gather the wheat, you have to separate the wheat from the chaff, otherwise you can't make bread. If you leave the chaff in the in the actual uh, on connected to the wheat, you won't enjoy that that uh, tip top. So in the barn where this wheat has been gathered and beaten, you have to separate those things. So the reason you have a fan, and normally they would do it outside in a, in a nice wind, is as you throw it up in the wind, the wind blows away the chaff because it's light, and the grain ends up falling back into your basket. And so if you don't have wind, you have a fan, okay? And so the John's saying here that Jesus is going to separate the wheat from the chaff. And one is going to be baptized with the Holy Ghost. And the other one is going to be baptized with fire. This is not, this is not as some Pentecostals might have you believe, that as soon as you receive Christ, you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost and fire at the same time. The fire this is speaking about is the fire of judgment. But the important thing is that when a person receives Christ as their saviour, when they turn to Christ and say, Lord, save me, because I can't save myself, Jesus immerses you in the Holy Spirit of God, which changes you from the inside out. Water baptism doesn't wash away any sin. It doesn't save you. Only Jesus can save you because he is the saviour, the only saviour. God has made provision through his own son to save this world. And it's not water that washed away any sin, but his blood that was shed on that cross, which carries away our sin. The blood of Jesus supernaturally washes the sin from a person's life and from their heart and makes them clean and presentable before God. Water can only clean you on the outside, but the blood of Jesus cleans you on the inside. You know, sometimes you need a blood transfusion if you have bad blood, and that's what Jesus' blood does. Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 26, verse 27, and he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, this new agreement between God and man, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. 
This is what God has done for everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. And Ephesians 1.6 says, To the praise and glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted, accepted to him, in the beloved, his own son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. But as I've said, there is also a baptism of fire for those who reject that provision of grace. For those who say, no, I want to continue doing it my way, and God, you're going to have to do, deal with, with me on my own terms. The foolishness of that position is unimaginable. It's not just a train wreck. It's a wreck for all of eternity. There exists a place, if someone wants to be independent from God, that God will give. That God has, believe it or not, he's made. A place outside of his presence. A place that doesn't have any joy, love, grace, forgiveness, mercy, peace that comes from knowing him. It's a place utterly alone. And there are unfortunately many who will choose that place. The Bible teaches us that the order of water baptism is important. The correct sequence to do things in is to repent, which means change your mind and turn to God and say, no, you're right and I was wrong. And then put your faith in Jesus Christ and then be baptized. The Bible teaches baptism is only for those who understand that they are sinners and can turn to Christ. In fact, you can look up every instance in the Bible and every verse in the Bible that has to do with baptism and you will not find a single verse that baptizes a baby. Not a single one, and there are many that are, that are spoken of. In every instance of the Bible, you will always discover that people believed, put their faith in Christ, and were then baptized. As one writer put it, baptism is an expression of faith by the individual. It cannot, therefore, be practiced by an infant who is incapable of expressing any faith of his own. Only the baptism of believers is authorised in the Bible. And so in the New Testament and in the first 300 years of the church, we do not find infants being baptised because they are incapable of expressing faith. In fact, they have no knowledge of good or evil. So how can they? The only ones who were baptised were believers. But what about the mode? I mean, you are in a Baptist church. Actually, this is a school building, but yeah. You might say the reason we're Baptists is because, you know, we love baptizing. Yeah, we do love baptizing. But that name wasn't actually, we didn't give ourselves that name. That name was a derogatory term that was given to us. We were called originally the rebaptizers. You know, if we saw someone who'd been baptized as a baby, we said, mm, that's not the way the Bible says it. We're going to have to rebaptize you. And so we got this reputation of rebaptizing people over and over again. And so we were no, we came known as the rebaptizers, and then you know people make things shorter and shorter all the time. We became Baptists. The mode of baptism is important though. So the sequence is important, but so is the mode, because it pictures something. And if you break that picture, you've destroyed the whole reason you're doing it for. Baptism doesn't save you, but it is an important and powerful symbol of death 
burial and resurrection. That's why you go under the water. What do you do when people die? You bury them. But guess what? Jesus was buried, was put in a tomb. And what happened with him? He came out. And so the picture is of death, burial and resurrection. Because of this, because of what the Bible teaches, the only real right way to baptize is by immersion, not sprinkling or pouring. In fact, the, the word baptism is a transliteration of an actual Greek word. We didn't Baptism wasn't an English or a Saxon word. It was the Greek word, and they used that same word. The Greek word is baptizo. We just called it baptism. Okay, They used the same word because it meant something special. It meant to fully immerse. In fact, they found some other documents outside of the Bible of a writings of a fellow called Nicanor, who was writing around 200 BC. And we found, and they found this particular word, baptizo, being used for a recipe for making pickles. Let's think about that for a moment. This fellow was baptizing his pickles, right? And in his recipe, he actually writes, uh, that the vegetable should first be baptized in boiling water, and then the vegetable should be baptized in vinegar. All right? There you go. There's your word, baptizo. That was 200 years before Christ. So, how do you baptize vegetables? How do you boil them? Do we sprinkle a couple of drops on the top? No. So, when you look at these people that are going to be baptized, please don't think of them as pickles. But, but the point here is that in order to in order to be baptized properly, you have to be immersed. You have to be underneath. Otherwise, it's not a valid baptism. And so, in 1611, the king, uh, when King James enlisted Greek and Hebrew scholars to translate the Bible into English, they used the word "baptize" for the first time. And the other reason, which are there are plentiful reasons to to continue with this line, this course of of argument, is that there are places in the Bible where they needed a lot of water to baptize people. They didn't just do it at a fountain. In fact, John chapter three verse twenty three it says, and John also was baptizing in Anon near near to Salim because there was much water there. Well, you don't need much water if you're only sprinkling some drops on a people's head. You need plenty of water if you're baptizing people because they have to go in it. Okay. Um, there's another place if you turn with me. Turn back to Matthew 3:16. This is that passage I've read for you, which was which talks about Jesus' baptism. We're almost here. Okay. Matthew 3:16. Verse 16. Now I want you to pay particular attention to the words and the, the order of these words. It says, and Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straight away out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. So when Jesus was baptized, what words are used here that reference him compared to the water? There are two words. Up and out which means he was down and and in or under. So Jesus' own baptism refers to him being down in under the water, in the water. And he had to come up 
and out again. And if I'm going to be baptised, I'd like to be baptised the way Jesus was baptised. When you go under the water, it isn't a, pic a picture of you being cleaned, okay, like uh, having a bath. The picture here is that you have died. And when you come up out of that water, it's a picture of the new life God's given you. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6, verse 3. We're almost done. Thanks for your patience. You see, remember I told you that this is this water baptism we're celebrating today is a picture of what's happened spiritually, right? So this is speaking about... Now, this passage in Romans 6, 3 and 4 is speaking of that spiritual thing that's happened to us, okay? It says there, Know you not, in Romans 6, 3... That so many of us, as we're baptised into Jesus Christ, were baptised into his death. Therefore, we are buried, buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. So there's a spiritual thing that's happened to a person, which is pictured by this. So what I want you to, to think about, when that person goes under that water today and they come back up, what they're declaring to everyone that's watching is, I've got new life. God's given me a second chance. My old life is dead and now I've got new life. And in fact, I've got such a hope because Jesus was just as Jesus was raised from the dead, that one day I'm looking forward to that. If I should die, if my physical body should die, the Bible says I'll be resurrected. So I have this hope of resurrection in the future, but even now I'm walking with new life. This happens to a person when they receive Christ on the day of their salvation. On that day, you are baptised in the Holy Ghost. Your old self died. God gave you a new identity. Just like my father-in-law had to take his Italian uniform off and put on the American uniform, all of a sudden he's seen as... An American. Huh? That happens to every believer who puts their faith in Christ. The Bible says that they are cleansed of all of their sin and God gives them a new robe to wear. In God's eyes, and we can't see it because we're still in this, we, we are only seeing things, we can only see things physically, but there's something tremendous that has happened physically. And in God's eyes, he sees us completely. And he sees us perfectly clean, but also wearing these unbelievably white and bright clothes of righteousness as we stand before him. That's why we can have confidence that we can go to his throne directly. You can come before your father's throne at any time and you're always presentable to him because he's, the blood of his own son has cleansed you from all of your sin. This happens once and to all who put their faith in Jesus Christ and he gives you eternal life. This is what the Bible speaks about being born again. And I'll just close with this passage. John chapter 3, verse 3. John chapter 3, verse 3. Coming up out of that water speaks about a new birth, a new life. 
something new that's happened to you. And when John, when the, then Jesus is having this discussion with Nicodemus, Jesus answered and said in John 3, 3, and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. And so the water becomes a picture of being immersed in the Holy Ghost. And once you're immersed in the Holy Ghost, that's the, the character of God. That's the third person of the Trinity. Once you're immersed in him, you are filled with him. You are surrounded and sealed by him, the Bible says, and you have new life in Christ Jesus. It's interesting here how he makes this parallel between you know, water and spirit. You need to be born both through water and through spirit. You might think, oh, is that talking about baptism? No, no, it's talking about normal flesh. We just had a birth recently in the church lovely baby girl and the first thing to indicate that she was ready to come into the world was what the waters broke which means that little baby girl was surrounded by water by amniotic fluid and then when she was born into the world that broke and she came and celebrated and we celebrated her life and so in the same sense when a person goes under that water it pictures death but it also, when they come out, it, it pictures that new life. And so the scriptures tell us in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, which means I died with him. Somehow, spiritually, I was up there on that cross with him. I identified myself with him and somehow he said, okay, the old Frank is up here with me. And so I died with him. And Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I. But Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, in this body, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the end of the war with God. Baptism is a declaration to everyone else. Hey guys, I've laid down my arms. I've got new life. I've chosen to follow him because I know he is true. And I now have peace with God. And this is a peace that can't be described unless you experience it for yourself. Ever been in a situation where you, you were so excited about something and you wanted to convey to someone else, but they couldn't be as excited as you because you're the one who experienced it? Well, this is the, the problem that Christians have, is that we have this, this unbelievable excitement, this experience of being in a relationship with God, of having peace with God, now of seeing everything in a totally different light, and it's so hard to explain. So if you're here this morning and haven't made peace with God, I would invite you to do so. I'll testify to you that he's good, that his son is perfect, that he loves you more than you can understand, and he wants to be with you. He wants you to be with him. So if you haven't made peace with God, then this invitation is to you this morning. Lay down your arms. Stop fighting. Because there's perfect peace 
when you're with him. You can experience the love, the forgiveness of Almighty God, be adopted into his family and have an unbelievable hope for the future. You'll have a reason to live. You'll have him by your side every step of the way and you'll experience a love that I can't describe. The Bible teaches us with this thought. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. This is the one who God said from heaven is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Put your trust in him today and you will never be let down. God bless you and thank you. Brother Donald.